Blog Talk Radio. you're joining us again today. Well, today we're going to have a rather titillating show. We are, number one, beginning first our hour-long show, so I'm very glad you'll be joining us for that maiden voyage, even though we've been on the air for many years on PRN, Progressive Radio Network, on MNN, Manhattan Neighborhood Network here in New York City. Uh, my word for some 20 years on community cable television and blog talk radio for the past period of time. The show is going from one half hour to an hour starting today. So I'm glad you're joining us and we're going to be filling up this full time with some very important subjects. The first is we are going to be speaking with a gentleman from the Organic Consumers Association. Very important association because they are doing a tremendous amount to help protect the meaning of the word organic and to protect our food supply uh, overall. One of the greatest threats, as we all know, is the uh, onslaught of Monsanto and their cronies regarding genetically modified organisms into the generic food supply. There happen to be some bills on the table right now in Congress, which would preempt and exempt Monsanto from any kind of legal act or prosecution if they were to uh, violate any of the existing laws. It's rather criminal, quite honestly. And we will be speaking in a moment with Ronnie Cummins, who was able to, at the last moment, join us on today's show. And after that, we will be followed by scientist Mark Goldace, who is the founder of the ASOP Institute, who will be speaking with us about solar flares and global warming, as well as remedies to at least part of that, uh, that will actually result in major economic boon to our country and beyond. So it's very interesting what looks, as the Chinese say, as a crisis, appears as a crisis, is actually also an opportunity. And we'll be exploring that with Mark in the latter part of today's show. So just to remind you all, every Tuesday night, in addition to this evening at 6, on Tuesday nights at 10.30 Eastern Daylight Time, you can tune into A Better World at abetterworld.tv and watch the show. 
and I have what I call the sung and the unsung heroes of our society doing wonderful things, making significant contributions to the betterment of the world in all areas of health and wellness and the environment and in the arts and science and beyond. We study and look at neuroscience, studies of consciousness, spirituality, etc., health, love, psychology, and relationships. So today uh, we are pinpointed on these particular issues, and very shortly you'll be understanding why. So let me bring in our guest, Ronnie Cummins. Uh, Ronnie, are you there? Let me try this. Ronnie, are you on the line? Yes, indeed. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Even at the last minute like that, you slipped in under the wire, and I very much appreciate it. Uh, You have been working with the Organic Consumers Association, and I know uh, you have been looking very closely at this current Monsanto rider, as it's referred to, and other biotech companies are involved in this as well. Could you speak to us a little bit about this legislation that's being voted on imminently? Yes, ever since 1994, the biotech industry and corporate agribusiness have been trying to force this technology of genetically engineered food and crops on the American public, and the public has been skeptical from day one. So the government has had to uh, make sure that the laws uh, and regulations governing genetically engineered food and crops are industry-friendly. One of the things they've done is made sure that these uh, food products that are genetically engineered are not labeled, even though 50 countries around the world, every industrialized country in the world, except pretty much for the United States and Canada, uh, require labeling. The second thing they've done is to make sure... How is it that it's not required uh, in the United States when it is required in all of these other 50 countries? Yeah, well, it's not that they... uh, thought that the American public was different from Europe or, you know, other countries where they do have labeling. It's uh, that they ask uh, American consumers uh, far before they introduced the first genetically engineered crops what they thought about them in surveys and focus groups. And what they found was people didn't like this idea of uh, gene splicing bacteria and viruses and antibiotic-resistant marker genes and taking genes from animals and putting them in plants and vice versa. Uh, People were very skeptical of this technology. And when you ask them, well, if the stuff were labeled, would you buy it? People always said no. So they made sure. Back in 1994, the person in charge of labeling uh, policy for the Food and Drug Administration, which is supposed to regulate labels on uh, food and drugs, uh, was a guy named Michael Taylor. Uh, and this guy, Michael Taylor, had been a lawyer for Monsanto previous to coming into the FDA. And he ushered in a policy uh, in, uh, from, from uh, you know, the early 90s there, uh, from the point at which the first products came on the market, bovine growth hormone and genetically engineered mm-hmm. tomatoes, said, you don't have to label the stuff. They said, the reason you don't have to label it is because it's substantially equivalent or it's basically just as safe uh, as the food that humans have, uh, you know, uh, been growing oh, been for 10,000 years. Of course, that's yeah. a lie. These are patented uh, 
patented foods yeah. and seeds uh, that are like nothing humans have ever eaten. So anyway, the other thing they yeah. did was make sure that these uh, new crops and foods did not have to be properly safety tested uh, the way, a say, a new pharmaceutical drug uh, has to be safety tested before you put it on the market. Because uh, again, of that one phrase that they are substantially equivalent to what preexisted. Exactly. That guy Michael right. Taylor, by the way, uh, he, he's like a zombie who just keeps coming back. Uh, Obama <laughs> recently appo- appointed him as the food czar uh, over yeah. food safety in the FDA. So he's back with us yeah. again. And, it sounds uh, like the fox watching the hen house. <laughs> so, again, they knew full well that uh, there's all these adverse reactions of animals when you feed them genetically engineered foods. There's these increases in allergies in humans. And, you know, we had disasters like the L-tryptophan uh, nutritional yeah. supplement, which was genetically engineered in 89, killed all these people, injured others. We had crops nearly come on the market in 96, some soybeans that would have devastated the public so that they've made sure that regulation up until now is quite light in terms of safety testing as well well this isn't good enough for monsanto and and uh, dow and dupont and basf and syngenta and you know all their buddies cargill and mcdonald's and all them because yeah. the public is as the public has become more aware uh they've resisted more uh the introduction of these new crops, the uh, even the federal court system is starting to listen to us. Over the last few years, we've been able to stop some crops uh, from being commercialized, and we've even been able to stop a couple of them that they had already started planting on a large scale, like the sugar beets uh, and the genetically engineered alfalfa. So what's now, happening right salmon? now? In, what, what happened with the salmon? Yeah, so the salmon, they have, salmon. Not, they have not legalized it yet, but they're hell-bent on doing so, even though uh, scientists in the Centers for Disease Control even, they're saying, well, this looks like it's going to be allergenic to us. And, you know, marine life biologists are saying, well, this certainly looks like these genetically engineered salmon and fish farms are going to devastate wild fish stocks and so on. So they are out of control in the Congress. Uh, we uh, most people realize this now that uh, big corporations and rich people control the Congress. They don't listen to us anymore. So the latest manifestation of this is yeah. What, what is the current pending farm bill about? Yeah, every year there's a agricultural appropriations bill passed by Congress that basically allocates the money for the for the next year. So that the 2013 agriculture appropriations bill is now making its way through the Congress. It just left the House Appropriations Committee uh, with a Monsanto rider in it that basically says that, uh, oh, we're not going to let federal courts slow down uh, the planting of genetically engineered crops anymore, even if, uh, you know, they hear evidence that this stuff is going to be harmful. Uh, Companies can go right ahead uh, and, you know, keep growing the stuff. Uh, they've also inserted language into the the farm bill, which is a, a huge, um, you know, multi-billion-dollar bill for the next five years. They've inserted similar language that'll weaken our already weak uh, regulatory control over these new crops. And yes. so now it'll have to be voted on by the House, uh, the full House uh, committee, the Appropriations, and and of course the farm bill is going to have to be approved by the full House and the Senate, and so on. 
So, so Ronnie, even, what does it mean? What does it mean to the American public if these these are two separate, distinct bills? Is that correct? Yes, uh, but with similar intent to weaken our already weak regulatory controls so what, over genetically engineered crops. Yeah, well, I, I in, our, in our food supply. What would I think what it means effect? to the I think what it means yeah. to the public is yes. that we have lost control over the federal government and the White House. I mean, we got someone sitting in the White House who claimed on the campaign trail in 2007 that once he was president, he would make sure that genetically engineered foods were labeled and properly regulated. Of course, uh, Obama's gotten in there, and he acts exactly like Bush. Uh, he acts exactly like Clinton uh, and, the, and the first Bush before him. These guys are all true believers in high-tech biotech. So it leaves us no choice. We have to go another route uh, in order to stop this biotech express. Uh, and the route that the uh, uh, organic movement and the anti-biotech movement has chosen is the California Ballot Initiative. Uh, and, yes, and that the was interesting uh, thing about 37. Yeah, yeah. yeah, on November 6th, California voters will go to the polls, and one of the uh, ballot initiatives in California will be, uh, do you want a label on genetically engineered foods, and do you want a ban on the industry practice of calling uh, foods that contain genetically engineered ingredients natural or all natural? And the yeah. polls are showing 90% of Californians support this, and so even though the other side is going to spend millions and millions of dollars lying, saying it's going to raise your grocery bills, it's a, going to harm California family farmers, it's going to uh, uh, basically create a situation where trial lawyers uh, go in and, and sue companies for, you know, for bounty hunting and so on. Uh, the bottom line is it's likely to pass. Uh, if it passes in California, it's going to have the effect of a national law in the United States. Because, after all, California is the eighth largest economy in the world. Uh, and when you pass a labeling law in California, uh, think about Kellogg's uh, cornflakes, for an example. Kellogg's cornflakes use genetically engineered corn in their cornflakes, uh, but they don't let consumers know that. Um, yes. Are they going to label their cornflakes as containing genetically engineered ingredients in California? Uh, you know, I after this so. law kicks in, right. well, if they so have the to, they have might to. Be, the effect might be that they cease using genetically modified corn. That's right. That's what they will do. And so the yes. whole industry is looking at this that, oh, my God, if we can't conceal from consumers that their food has been genetically engineered and we put a label on it, they're not going to buy our products. You know, it's like we recently saw the situation with, Kashi cereals, which is the that's the so-called natural uh, subsidiary yeah. of Kellogg's, and it turns out that Kashi stuff is full of genetically engineered ingredients and other is other junk. And uh, so they're in what a tremendous. Other, what other national brands or even so-called healthy, seemingly healthy brands are using genetically modified food, be it corn or soy? or anything. Well, one of the you... shocking things is that if you go into a, a, a supermarket, say a Whole Foods supermarket, right? Yes. You go into the supermarket, you, 
you uh, it's, it's got this greenwash veneer of everything being organic and healthy in it. But if you actually look at the labels in Whole Foods, you see that only about one-third of the products they sell are certified organic. Now, the other two-thirds, this so-called natural or organic, if you uh, buy a so-called natural or all-natural food that is a processed food, you know, something with multiple ingredients, uh, and you look, you flip it over and you look at the ingredients, you'll see that almost everything has corn sweetener or soy lecithin or some derivative of corn or or uh, soy or it's sweetened with sugar beets or, uh, you know, some things have cottonseed oil, which they often call vegetable oil. Basically, yes. everything in Whole Foods that's a processed food that contains soy or corn or cottonseed oil or canola uh, has genetically engineered ingredients in it. And uh, if people knew this, which they're going to know this after the California law passes, Whole Foods yeah. is going to have to tell all their suppliers, look, guys, don't send us any more genetically engineered stuff, and we're going to expand our offerings of organic from, say, one-third of the store to two-thirds. So this is what's going to happen if this passes. Right. And right. what we're trying to tell uh, people across the United States is don't fall into despair because Washington has fallen into the hands of the big corporations and their regulatory agencies. Look for openings in your local level. Most cities in the United States, 75% of cities in the United States, have ballot initiative potential where you can pass a law directly. Uh, and it's in other words, like, like this prop, like this proposition, like this prop, in uh, California. Yeah, and 24 states allow you on the state level to pass uh, initiatives. Tw you know, and 19 states allow you to recall uh, crooked politicians. It's called recall. You know, they just yeah. fought over this in Wisconsin. Just like in Wisconsin, sure. But we sure. need to start thinking about where do we still have leverage? Where do we still have power? And the closer you get to your local government and the closer you Indeed. get to the marketplace, the more power you have. So we need to start a long march that begins from wherever we pull out our wallets every day and wherever we vote every two to four years from and start taking back Street. that power. In other words, from home to Main Street, really, is what we're looking at. Uh, no, your words are very well appreciated and received. What it means is that, number one, California acts, as you well said, Ronnie, as a um, trendsetter for the rest of the country. And if this proposition gets adopted in California, it will spread like wildfire as a proposition to other states across the country, and it will change the economics of genetically modified organisms in our food supply. It will frustrate and thwart the efforts by the biotech industry to continue to seek to overwhelm our Congress. Congress will have egg all over its face again. The FDA has already sunk its own ship with the disclosures that have come out just last week regarding their fraudulently investigating their own scientists and this could as Gary Null said properly today could be and should be as big as Watergate and I think the alternative media to start with will start really blasting this story loud and, and uh, 
news organizations like CNN tend to follow, interestingly enough, the lead of uh, alternative media, and this is something that can really get out there and really have an effect on changing, on blowing the whistle all the way up to the White House about these corrupt, fraudulent, and illegal actions taking place at the FDA and the other government agencies. So I very much appreciate your point. Is, is there something that our audience can do proactively to help to defeat the, even though it's on the federal level, nonetheless, it's still our government, even though it doesn't appear to be, and um, to help defeat these pending bills? Yes, you could just go to the website of Organic Consumers Association, which is organicconsumers.org, and sign our action alert, which will go to your uh, elected representatives and senators in Congress. And, you know, over half a million of us have done this already, but the more of us uh, that take action, uh, the, the better. Uh, and also Excellent. you should consider supporting financially, make a donation to the California Ballot Initiative and, uh, you know, this will affect labeling in your state as well, even if you don't live in California. And you can go Excellent. to the Organic Consumers Association website, go to the section called Millions Against Monsanto, and you'll be directed how you can uh, make a donation to the California Ballot Initiative. Excellent, excellent. Jeffrey Smith is uh, is a colleague and a dear friend. He was just here in New York with me uh, last week, and uh, he's putting together a film on GMOs, which is going to be vastly circulated. Uh, I don't think it's too much to tell the world that uh, Dr. Oz's wife, Lisa Oz, is uh, doing the narration. It's very exciting. In fact, he was going to try to join us today on the air uh, for this segment, but uh, was too busy with the film to be able to lift his head out of it, but wanted to be with us and is with us in spirit. Uh, well, I Jeffrey, would highly recommend you know, uh, Jeffrey yeah. Smith's uh, organization, the Institute for Responsible Technology, one of the best Correct. places you can go on the on the web to get in-depth information about the hazards of genetically engineered That's foods correct. and crops. Ronnie Cummins, thank you so much for joining us here on A Better World. Thank you for your good work. Please keep it up. Full throttle ahead. We're making headway. Okay. Thanks a lot, Mitchell. Keep up the good Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Bye-bye. This is Mitchell J. Raven for A Better World. Thanks for joining us. That was our first segment discussing uh, Monsanto, uh, genetically modified organisms in our food, swimming about our food supply. It's scary, it's awful, and it has to have a stop to it. It has to have an expiration date, so to speak. So let's help on every level, federal and state, uh, to bring that about. As Ronnie properly said, <clears throat> the state level and the local levels are the best places to exert muscle. Uh, they're not as bought off. It's not as centralized. Your voice is larger. Our voice is larger. And what happens on a local level ultimately is what matters most. So I believe, and I've said this time and again, that uh, the world that we are moving into, the new form of society, is going to be decentralized and local in nature. Back to village life, folks, just the way it used to be. And uh, 
So you may as well get used to exerting your influence on a local level because that's where it's going to be needed for a long time to come. So I'm so glad you're joining us all today. This is Mitchell J. Rabin. Please visit us on our website, www.abetterworld.tv. And if you do not yet receive our weekly newsletter, free newsletter that is, please join it. It's uh, available right there. Just sign up for it on the uh, homepage of our website and become part of a better world. Become part of the solution. And God knows we need everybody to join together at this point in time to speak your voice and to take action. So now for the next part of today's show, we will be speaking with Mark Goldace, who is a scientist originally from New York City, and he has been doing such excellent work for many years now um, in the domains of green technology and energy efficiency, and has also been a a major research scientist while he has been working on and continuing to develop his nonprofit organization called the ESOP Foundation, the ESOP Institute. So what Mark has to present today is really quite earth-shattering. It's so important for us all to know because we're all drifting off into our own little worlds, uh, which is sometimes appropriate, but there are other times to step outside of ourselves and to take a good hard look at what's actually going on both uh, geologically and cosmologically. That is, this corner of our universe, this corner of our galaxy is heating up. We know we are experiencing global warming and climate change on this very planet, but it's not just this planet that's heating up. The entire solar system is. And there have already begun a series of solar flares hitting the face of our Earth. Now, these have been going on forever. One of the most notable ones, uh, large ones, occurred in 1851, I believe it was. But at that point, we were not so set up electrically. So the effect that those particular flares had on the Earth were minimum. However, at this point in time, in 2012, it's quite a different story. We are wholly set up. Our lives are run, governed, literally, by our grid system. And Mark is going to go into some detail about this, having been involved in this kind of research for many, many years. And it's really an honor and a privilege to have Mark on discussing what he refers to as the three ticking time bombs. So, Mark, are you on the line? I am. Good. I'm so glad to have you on A Better World. I'm delighted to be here. Good. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Now, your experience, Mark, is rather vast in the world of science and research, and what you are looking at now is yet another expression of your diligence on behalf of uh, humanity and the planet itself. Walk us through, if you would, give us some, in some depth what you mean, which we wrote up on our website and on, in our uh, newsletter this week, these three ticking time bombs 
to which you refer? Well, basically, we face three things that can end human life as we know it. And one of them is, as you mentioned, the possibility of a solar flare emission hitting our geomagnetic field. And when that happens, the geomagnetic field vibrates. And if it vibrates enough, it can cause very heavy currents to go into all the power lines in the world, which act as an antenna. And when that happens, there are a number of extraordinarily large transformers, an estimated 20,000 of them across the planet. And these are three stories high, typically, and they basically take months to build, and at the moment, they're typically three years behind in ordering them and getting delivery of one. And these 20,000 transformers can all go down. About half of them could go down in an event similar to one that hit our planet in 1921. And you mentioned the Carrington event, which took place in the 1850 period. And if that kind of an event hit, which is estimated to be entirely possible, it would take down the whole grid. And the consequence of losing those 20,000 transformers is a massive blackout. If we had a blackout of a few days for a number of people in the Northeast, you know how unpleasant that is. Just yeah. imagine it lasting for months. And if it lasts yeah. for months, the most extraordinary danger is one that very few people are paying attention to. And that is the fact that all nuclear plants cannot survive with more than two weeks of a loss of grid power. They all have some standby power, but if the grid power is gone for two weeks, the plant melts down. Fukushima is a perfect example of a meltdown at a nuclear plant, and it's still causing the second time bomb. The basic thing is that we have over 100 nuclear plants in the United States, and we have 5,500 of these huge transformers in this country. And at the moment, none of them have any protection against a strong solar flare. And that creates disasters. So we're looking at the possibility of radioactive fallout that could very well end life on the planet. It would be very similar to what might have happened if the Soviet Union and the United States had actually exchanged massive numbers of nuclear weapons. And Ooh. fortunately, that never happened. And unfortunately, the same kind of radioactive fallout could take place all across the planet many, many times what happens from a single nuclear plant, and that's bad enough, as we'll get into in a moment with Fukushima. The primary thing is it can be prevented. A small company in Connecticut... Advanced Fusion Systems, has invented an extraordinary vacuum tube based on work they did for military purposes. That vacuum tube, excuse me a second, I'm getting another call. I'm just going to hang it up here. Yes. <clears throat> I'll intercede by saying you're listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin, our guest today. For the rest of today's show is Mark Goldis, scientist originally from Brooklyn, now from the West Coast, founder of the 
ESOP Institute, and uh, the company to which he refers is one I've been familiar with for years, actually from its very inception for a dear friend and colleague of mine, Peter Roth, has been involved in uh, in its founding with his brother, and uh, they're doing some extraordinary work. It's excellent uh, in terms of providing uh, solutions to a grid a decimation that could occur through solar flares. There is an answer. Um, there are numerous of them, actually. But this, as far as I know, and Mark knows, who's been studying this for a long time, uh, is probably one of the best, most immediate solutions and ready solutions at hand. The overall long-term view is that if we manage to get through the uh, solar flare um, issues uh, over the next year to two years, when they will become uh, particularly intense hitting planet Earth, if we get through this period and global warming and the overall structure of nuclear uh, weaponry, of course, but even nuclear power on this planet with 104 reactors here in the United States alone, this continued fall, fallout from Fukushima, then we're going to be decentralizing the energy system anyway. And the idea of there being a centralized grid that can be destroyed by solar flares will be proportionally lessened if not eliminated altogether. Mark, are you on the air? Mark is not yet back. So let me just say again, we're facing some very serious issues here as a humanity, as a species, um, as the so-called guardians, custodians, stewards of our planet. And what we see is that we have totally fallen asleep at the wheel. Having nuclear plants across the planet being as utterly dangerous as they are, being placed even more so on um, earthquake fault lines, not understanding the real mechanisms and dangers of them, thinking only of the short-term profits, and governments always, always subsidizing these businesses, so to speak. Talk about socialism. Oh, my word. Now, I have no issue with any ism as such, but it's always very interesting to hear, and I am no defender of Obama, believe me, but he is oftentimes associated with socialist measures. Well, any president that would have subsidized the cost going into the billions of dollars of any nuclear plant, and there have been 104 of them uh, that have been constructed over the past 50 years, 60 years, has taken what could rightfully be called major socialist measures for private industry. Interesting. And employing people through government subsidy. It did not begin in the year 2008. This has been a phenomenon that has been plaguing our country for many decades. It's important to point that out. Uh, let me see here. If I, Mark, are you back? I'm trying to get to you. Can you hear me? Oh, now I can. Now I can. Yes. Okay. I wasn't able lost... to hear you before. Yes. 
Okay. Okay, please pick up where you left off. Yes. Well, basically what we're looking at is the possibility of having an enormous amount of radioactivity circulating around the globe unless we very quickly protect the grid. And it can be protected. This little company in Connecticut, which will be in mass production in a very large plant, 200,000 square foot plant, at the end of the year, uh, has developed an extraordinary device that can go on all of the 20,000 or so transformers all over the world and keep them from melting down or exploding from a solar impact. So that's one huge possibility for protecting the planet. The second time bomb is Fukushima. Fukushima is still a very, very dangerous problem. There are fuel pools. One of them, fuel pool number four, is 100 feet in the air in a building that's now bulging on two sides and which all of the geologists who've studied it have concluded is in great danger of collapsing. There's a 70% probability of such a collapse in a 7.0 earthquake within one year and a 98% probability within three years. And the company involved, TEPCO, is very slowly taking steps to protect us from what could be an extraordinary problem of the same amount of radioactivity if that fuel pool number four collapses as would have taken place from at least half of all the nuclear explosions on the planet from nuclear tests in the atmosphere, and possibly the same as all of those tests. And that is an extraordinary problem which could end life in the northern hemisphere. It wouldn't happen all at once because the radioactivity induces cancers, but the cancers would probably over a 25-year period end human life in our country, in all of Europe, in all of Asia. And that, of course, can't be allowed to happen. There are sure. things that can be done to protect us from that. They need to be applied by pressuring the Japanese government to accept help, which it has not yet been able to do. That is, it hasn't been willing to do it. An American, Arnie Gundersen, who's an expert and used to build these fuel pools, uh, has pointed out that much can be done to safeguard the fuel pools at Fukushima to prohibit anything like this terrible danger that exists from the building collapsing. And that's the second time bomb that's ticking. The third one is climate change. And everyone has heard a great deal about climate change, and you all know that there are many, many people who don't believe it. And in the United States, that's become a problem, which has yeah. forced, forced the, the government to back away from the steps that might protect us from climate change, which would involve absolutely accelerating as rapidly as possible the superseding of fossil fuels. Now, there are many people in science who would say, well, you can't really do that. The, the solar and wind can't take care of it. And they're right. Solar and wind are only part of the solution. But the interesting thing is that that third ticking time bomb would be greatly helped by paying attention to the first ticking time bomb. Because mm -hmm. if, in fact, we do things to protect those tra transformers and we think about how we can decentralize energy, 
one very obvious thing that can be done is to add 50 million more solar roofs. That won't uh-huh. solve it. But it certainly can be done. The technology exists. We all know it works. There are technical difficulties because at the moment when the grid fails, so do the solar panels. Almost all of them are hooked up in a way that would preclude what needs to happen. But that's a, fi- a simple technical fix. And if we then installed some storage at every home that had solar panels, you would have a potential for having a decentralized grid very much faster than anybody imagines. And since survival is at stake, literally for everyone, their children, your friends, your neighbors, everybody you work with, we're talking about survival on a massive scale, then it's very likely that as this becomes understood, widely understood and accepted, that you would see even the opponents who don't believe in climate change agreeing that you can't take the chance of a solar flare knocking out life on the planet. And the interesting thing is not long ago, Paul Krugman was interviewed by Fareed Zakaria on CNN, and he pointed out that if our planet was being attacked by some other planet from outer space, that we would defend it in such a way that within 18 months, we would have forgotten all about the problems of debt and inflation. We'd simply have done what we had to do as we did in World War II when we were attacked. And essentially, within 18 months, the economic slump would be over. Now, that's an extraordinary <laughs> comment by an yeah. extraordinary economist. That by a Nobel University. Prize winning economist. Yes, who's won the Nobel yeah. Prize. And it's very clear that he's probably correct. And yes. we have the resources. If we understood what the problem is, that we're being attacked by our friendly sun, which makes our lives possible, we are now playing a game known as Russian roulette with the sun. Yes. And yes. and stopping that can be done with technology. And it costs some billions of dollars to put that to 3,000 transformers, but it would save human life on the planet. And if we yes. then added 50 million solar roofs, we'd have spent $100 billion more dollars. But that's nothing compared to not saving the planet. And so and, we and have... And destroying civilization as we know it. Exactly. And, and the consequence of that is even more interesting because there are new technologies. They are still black swans, highly improbable innovations with enormous implications. And the black swans are now beginning to surface in ways that suggest a number of them will be turn real in the next year or so. And as they go to mass production, they'll provide us with cost-competitive electrical energy, cost-competitive heat energy, in such a way that fossil fuels can be superseded very, very much faster than almost anyone believes. What, what as a scientist studying this and being involved in innovative technologies for literally decades, Mark, what is your estimation of when these innovative technologies, including um, solar and wind, could actually satisfy the energy needs of, number one, our country, and number two, the rest of the planet? 
Now, that doesn't mean and it doesn't assume the end of the use of fossil fuels. But when do you think, and I know this is simply a, a projection, but I'd like your reasonable estimate as a scientist, we would have enough energy that would be generated through these other renewable technologies. Well, the interesting thing is that we know that we can do these things with existing technology, and as the new breakthrough technologies surface, we certainly them a lot faster. My guess is that within a decade, you would see the, the change so dramatic that the fossil fuels, as you say, would still be used, but they'd be very much less than they are today. And within yeah. five years, if we did things around the clock, you know, when Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941, what happened within a matter of months is that the automobile industry converted to making armaments. And Ford Motor Company had a plant at Willow Run, Michigan, that started making B-24 bombers. These were four-engine bombers. And within months after Pearl Harbor was attacked, every 59 minutes, four-engine B-24 bomber would roll off the assembly line at Willow Run. Now, all this new technology is incredibly simple next to building bombers. It's incredibly simple stuff next to that. And I'm not a scientist. I'm an engineer by background. But basically, the important thing is these are engineering problems. These are yeah. changing now. We're in the process of changing breakthrough technology from science to engineering. It's now becoming something that can be engineered, and there are many very, very exciting breakthroughs. One of them, for example, in Vietnam by an American who was born there and went back a few years ago. It's fueled by water. Now, almost anyone in science will tell you that has to be impossible. And he has demonstrated fuel cells that run on either fresh or salt water. And they're inherently cheap. And they're apparently being fueled by liquid coal, which is used internal to the cell in a substance we call graphene, which has become one of the major breakthroughs in the last few years. He heads a nanotechnology group at a laboratory in Vietnam, and he was at Hewlett-Packard for years as a senior scientist, and before that at Kodak, and apparently kept Kodak alive for some years with his mm. inventions, and made other inventions for Hewlett-Packard, holds 39 American patents, and basically has now done a water-powered fuel cell. That's one of the technologies that looks very exciting. He's making 200 of them right now that produce two kilowatts or more for Japan because his investment partner for that project is Japanese, and he did his Ph.D. in Japan. So we are at a point where a very different kind of fuel cell will happen that runs on water. There's an American company, Blacklight Power. The science is still very, very much challenged. And it's still not clear that they have what they claim they have. But what they claim is that a small amount of water vapor, if they use it to run an engine that is a fuel cell of their design, not an engine, a fuel cell of their design, which they call a CIHT, that that device 
installed in a car the size of a Prius would run that car for more than 5,000 miles on a single gallon of water. Now, that, too, is ordinary water, and there it's more doubtful, only because their technology has to demonstrate that it's scalable, and that hasn't yet happened. But they claim it will, and during the next 12 months, we should know whether or not they succeed in scaling their technology. Then there are things that used to be called cold fusion. Cold fusion devices are now being produced by a number of different laboratories all over the world. It's now known generally as low-energy nuclear reactors. They even turn out, the more interesting, are not even nuclear. These are a new type of reaction that we don't thoroughly understand, and systems are being developed that run on tiny amounts of nickel powder. An amount of nickel powder that would fit in your cell phone can run a reactor for six months that produces enough power to power your home. And so if these can be commercialized, and we're not yet sure that they can, although there are companies claiming that they can, we will soon find out, if, and there again, within a year, we should know the answers to that one, that there's enormous amounts of nickel on the surface of the earth, and the powdered nickel that's needed is nothing difficult to create. So that what we're looking at is that that technology may turn out to surprise all of us. There's an underlying point, Mark, in uh, much of what you're saying, which is that when human beings are given the uh, creative context and a little funding to make things happen, I mean what we would call magic happen, what we would often call miraculous happen in a very real way. It does happen. Just the conversion of the uh, auto plants for World War II to go from making cars to bombs is an example of the kind of power human beings have, Americans, but human beings anywhere, to make things happen as they need to, to answer the call to action. It's brilliant, and it's just part of our human versatility that allows us to do it. If one fraction, if 2% of the budget that is spent on the United States military, 2% of the money spent on harvesting oil for Exxon and the other uh, oil giants was to be spent on the development of innovative renewable technologies, including improving solar and wind, although I've been working with a wind company uh, over the past year that uh, changes the game in wind and makes it a true high-efficiency technology and uh, energy generator, uh, we would have the face of a different planet. It would take all of, as you keep saying, 12 months up to 24 months to make the conversion with the smallest amounts of investment. But there's very little political will. There's very little economic will to do so because money is the subject that everybody is always focusing on, the big corporations, more than actually saving humanity and the species. But it can be done. As you said, the basics of the technology are already here from Vietnam to California. You probably know about the water car that was advertised for for at least 15 years in L.A. 
the guy was on the uh, internet, and people could go and visit the car and ride in the car in on an LA block for years. So these are not new technologies. They are getting more refined. It's good news, but it's just so clear to me that you and I are on the cutting edge of many of the scientific and technological breakthroughs that are taking place. You and I happen to be two people that know about them, and we're not going to go into detail about them here on the air, but the fact is they are here. They are before us, and if we only had the funds to further explore them, to commercialize them, we would be able to democratize energy. Um, it wouldn't be for free, but it would be really low cost, and it would be equitable. And that's a word that is no longer used in our polite society. <laughs> it doesn't fit in to the 1%, 99% uh, disparity. Well, the Your comments, Mark. The interesting thing, Mitchell, is that it doesn't take huge amounts of money to move these things to the point at which they will then take off. Correct. The real problem is the is the small money that's needed at the beginning, which is really the most difficult money to find because when you deal with things that are not yet scientifically accepted, that aren't in the textbooks, that are out of the box, and all yes. of the exciting technology is in that category – it's extremely difficult for people to say, "Oh, I'll take a, I'll gamble on that." And the interesting yeah. thing is that there have there have been companies that have been starving all over the planet, that with very modest amounts of money in terms of what's needed for larger companies and for other kinds of of companies like the internet. Uh, could make a huge difference, and they will. It's no longer a question of will it happen. It's a question of how quickly and whether it exactly. happens when human life on the planet. Basically, the ESOP Institute is looking as a nonprofit at all of the different things that might be done, and essentially if people would like to help the Institute, they can. They, of course, can contribute money. But in addition to that, they're welcome to lend money, which earns 10% per annum, and essentially that helps just as much. And basically we're at an urgent point now in terms of needing some additional funds in order to keep this work going. And yes, we know indeed. that it must keep going because it's, it's literally life-saving for so many people and so urgent that it keep moving forward as fast as it possibly can. Exactly. Well, for you to come up with uh, the, an article that so is well researched as you have done with the, um, the ticking time bombs, which we have published on our website and uh, we've been talking about in today's show, is testimony to the good work that the ASOP Institute is doing and why you need some funding to help you keep going. It's uh, it's very obviously the case. What is the way that people could reach you if they would want to donate whatever whatever sum of money they could, or yes. or, or as you said, or extend a loan? They can go to ESOP Institute, spelled A E S O P, like the old storyteller, ESOPinstitute.org, and you'll find on that at the bottom of any of the articles you'll find. Somewhere in the article, and usually at the end, you'll find a mailing address and a phone number. 
And I'll give you the phone number over the air. It's 707-861-9070. You can send me emails at mgolds at msn.com, and I'll be glad to hear from you. And as you said and as I've said, people are welcome to do this not only as donations, but as loans that bear interest at 10%. They're unsecured. But the Institute is likely to receive some substantial funding in the future, and the consequence of that is the loans then can be paid. And we're looking at this point at just bridging a gap that's quite urgent to bridge. Mark Goldis, I want to thank you so much for your good work at the ASAP Institute and uh, now here at A Better World, sharing your insights and your knowledge with us rather generously. I really appreciate it, and uh, I wish you the best in continued good work. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Take good care. Okay. You too. That's Mark Goldes from the ASOP Institute, who is obviously very involved in uh, changing the world for the better through the uh, promulgation of information that will democratize the use of energy as well as to protect us from the abuse of the current and the foolishness of the current situation between nuclear power and the lack of proper preparation for the known solar flares. NASA has been telling us about these, uh, these flares for quite some time. They were very predictable. They are happening. One hit just a couple of days ago. Now, what we do not know through NASA or any other source is where they will hit or oftentimes exactly when they were hit. They will hit, but that's a little better known. But where they hit will make a big difference in the potential damage they will cause. But we can see, as Mark noted, a complete change in our civilization if they really uh, hit the key points, the key nodes in the grid, and very few people are really prepared. There are answers, as was made very clear in this show, and there is personal preparation that everybody really needs to make, and we we, uh, intend to explore that further in subsequent shows by inviting guests on who have done a lot of research bearing down on this important So please make sure to stay tuned to A Better World on Blog Talk Radio and get all that you can about this. We are, after all, in the year of 2012, the most talked about year of perhaps all recorded human history. And things are explosive. It may not be the way the Mayans are, let me say, the way people interpret the Mayan calendar. It's not a Hollywood game, but there are things happening that can be noted astronomically as well as astrologically and prophetically. There is a certain reality to the Bible. I think we all know it and recognize it, and we ought to pay attention to it. So please note, this is Mitchell J. Rabin, for a better world, visit us at our website at www.abetterworld.net. We love having you come, both to listen to us live and in archive, which is also at that same site, as well as at Blog Talk Radio. Send us uh, your uh, email and 
communicate with us. We love your thoughts, your feelings, your comments, your feedback. MJR at abetterworld.net. That's MJR at abetterworld.net. Love hearing from you. Love suggestions for guests as well as how to improve our show and how much you like it. We're also looking for sponsors, so please know if any of the subjects we discuss, and there are many, relate to you and your business, get in touch with us. Again, Mitchell J. Raven, thanks for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.